Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes made of ticky tacky. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes all the same. There's a pink one and a green one and a blue one and a yellow one and they're all made out of ticky tacky and they all look just the same. And the people in the houses all went to the university where they were put in boxes and they came out all the same and there's doctors and lawyers and business executives and they're all made out of ticky tacky and they all look just the same and they all play on the golf course and drink their martinis dry and they all and the children go to school and the children go to summer camp and then to the university where they are put in boxes and they come out all the same and the boys go into business and marry and raise a family in boxes made of ticky tacky and they all look just the same there's a pink one and a green one, and a blue one, and a yellow one, and they're all made out of ticky-tacky. And Good morning. Welcome to Wake the F Up on 101.5 UMFM. We air on Thursdays, 11 to 11.30. My name is Christina. I use pronouns she, her. Cran's not with us today. He's probably too busy calling out some abusers, and we love him for it. And I have a guest with me here today, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi, uh, my name is Nick, Nikolai Lopkowski. Pronouns he and him. The UMFM 101.5 broadcasts at 1200 watts from the University of Manitoba, located on Treaty 1 territory, the original lands of the Anishinaabeg, Mihaiwak, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. So, Nick, what would you say is the epidemic of our age? <laughs> well, so reading off the beautiful notes we have on the screen here, <laughs> of course... <laughs> Looking around from a young age, I'll go into a nice little anecdote here because I I'm mean, so ready yeah, for anecdotes. Naturally, <laughs> um, I go into a nice little anecdote. I, I grew up just outside the city in the, the small town of Lorette. I looked around me growing up, and all I saw was really quite disturbing. I'll get to what that might be, of course. I grew up participating in kind of what I thought a little boy should be doing, and kind of fixing myself towards what man should be doing and what I should be doing as a boy and toward becoming a man. By that, I mean engaging in all the activities and, and interests and stuff, skidooing, hanging out with friends, playing video games, watching war movies and action movies, and talking about girls. And eventually when, of course, we hit uh, 18, not 16 or 15, uh, <laughs> engaging in, in kind of reckless alcoholic behavior every weekend, twice. Growing up and seeing all that, it was really quite... I came to realize quite empty. I looked around me and I saw all my friends' parents, saw my parents who engaged in this kind of behavior, specifically the men, the fathers of the family. I saw them every weekend just getting drunk Friday and Saturday night. Sunday was a hard day for them and then they'd have to go back to work all week at some job they really did not like. Maybe sparse every once a year with a nice vacation that would lead them out to a little bit of paradise where they had to deal with only their children for which was a pain in the ass. And, and of course, their wife, which whatever that meant was not... One of yeah. five prescribed travel destinations. Yeah, exactly. I did it. I, of course, I went to Florida. I went to Mexico. But I looked around. I was upset because everyone seemed so unhappy. Everyone seemed quite miserable. Like I saw it in the way they used, I mean, alcohol as an escape. 
I was introduced early on to this notion of escapism, and I, I dwelled on it well into till now, 21 years old, this escapist phenomena, and I wasn't sure what it was. No one has an answer. I still have no answers. No one has an answer. But in my studies, I came to start exploring more. I, I'm a history student, so I came to explore what would become mental health and, and kind of existential attitudes, if I may, throughout the march of human history. And just that in, in comparison to kind of what I had saw around me as a child to kind of my own attitudes. And then I gradually, through my interaction with social media and the broader culture, broader Winnipeg urban culture, I came to realize, and this is the, the gist of this talking point here, is the question that Christina just asked. I came to realize how quite depressed everyone was, how much of a crisis mental illness was. I wasn't sure what was going on. Of course, again, to reiterate, no one knows what's going on. But as someone who studied history, it seemed that these levels of depression and mental illness can be likened to an epidemic, if I may. Many would disagree with me, but just look at Twitter, for example, or Instagram or something, or just meme culture, which is kind of a, a beautiful insight into the attitudes of our time. There's a serious reflection of hopelessness and despair, lack of meaning. A lot of us in the Marxist tradition, of course, would chalk this down to, I think this was talked about last week on the show, it was kind of discussed was liberal capitalism and how that in itself kind of degrades meaning and degrades. And I absolutely affirm that. But I think the question goes beyond just examining the material conditions. So I think we have to really quite look into the intricacies of kind of, of our cultural makeup and the intricacies of our cultural existence and the intersubjective narratives that we were kind of faced with in the everyday to kind of look to find our answers here. Maybe taking as a aside from now, that depression is, mental health is an epidemic. It is the epidemic of our time. Absolutely. So we should move to then kind of discussing why am I here? I'm here to discuss masculinity. So looking around now, we're living in Manitoba. We're a cultural enclave as anything is. But of course, we are permeated by the dominant kind of Canadian, North American, Western, Occidental narratives around masculinity. So growing up, of course, I looked around me and the men in my life, they were skidooing. They loved their sports. They loved sex, but they didn't love their wives. They loved hanging with the boys, the other miserable dads, and they loved drinking and, and partying. And Spitting some hard truths right here. <laughs> and that's it's a good kind of condensation of the masculine narratives of our time. I mean, of course... The gentlemen in their kind of in the older years often become quite subservient to the dominant narratives of the time, whereas youth are often kind of known to be challenging of it. So it's really quite challenging to pick out the narratives of our time from our age group. These intricacies certainly manifest in some interesting ways in some aspects of performative culture when it comes to uh, white males. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, I mean, I grew up thinking that skidooing was just what everyone did. Which I, of course, come to later realize, no, absolutely not. Not only skidooing, but hockey and drinking and girls. And wrestling and girls wrestling. And girls wrestling <laughs> and, and going to the strip club and going to the bar and watching sports with the boys and, and video games and violence and war and action movies. I thought that was all kind of just not a, quite objective, but just truth. It was how the man operated. It was what I was. It was essential to my character is to throw myself towards that. I mean, I hope to have found kind of some authentic things that I can work towards. But still predominantly in our culture, there's this is white Manitoban male still quite adheres to these narratives. I mean, look around you, see the white boy. I hope that's not a derogatory term to say white oh, boy. Oh, we talk about white boys a lot oh, on good. this show. Don't you worry. Warranted. <laughs> um, the white boy, a boy with an I, B-O-I. Um, it's a term. It's a, it's a concept. It's a thing. Oh, yeah. The white boy, you see them around with their flow. They're wearing typically a blue jays cap is kind of the, the joke I make. 
they're ex-hockey players or they're still hockey players. They have a thing called a roster, which is I don't want to rag too much. Oh, you, you heard but what is, what a, is a the roster? roster? A roster is okay. So when a man reaches his sexual prime, he's told that he has to, of course, have sex with a lot of different people, a lot of different girls specifically, and take a lot of photos with fish. A lot of photos with fish, of course. That's the tind- <laughs> that's the Tinder phenomenon, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. That's uh. Taking photos is kind of conceived as a feminine narrative, so I mean, we're not expected to be taking photos of ourselves. So if you ever go on Tinder as a girl, you know full and well that the only time a guy takes his photo is if it's with a fish. This is true. Okay, so the roster thing. What the is roster that? thing. <laughs> the roster thing is so when you reach your sexual prime, you're supposed to have sex with a lot of girls. Okay, so you develop this list of potential mates that you say you're talking to at a given moment, and there's kind of a spectrum or a gradient of kind of likelihood to not necessarily sleep with, but just have someone in your life. I, I, I don't want to say this is a quite sinister thing. It often isn't, but it's still a phenomenon. This is fascinating. No one's ever been honest enough to explain this. Yeah, so, like, say if this is a Saturday night and I want to hang out with someone. Not me, per se, but if I'm... If, if I want to drive a white boy. Yeah, I'm a, a white boy. I want to drive a Jeep. Um, <laughs> I was the first-line left winger for my high school hockey team. I work as an electrician, but I play Vix. Shout out to all my uh, all the boys play Vix. The Victorias is a hockey team. It's a junior to hockey team. You have a, a listing, and as you get shot down, you just go down the roster, like crossing off names. And is this something that is shared from guy to guy? Like they talk about each other's rosters, and it's like a status thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, a status thing. Absolutely. You kind of compare. This is kind of an implicit kind of like, oh, his roster is better than mine. And not every man uses necessarily the term roster. I've heard but just it, the list. The list, simply. yeah. Or like you'd be like kind of couched in different language like all the girls i'm talking to like oh i really like her the most and stuff right and you just kind of you discuss that i mean there's a vein of it that can be wholesome that you kind of realize who you want to see the most but also and i guess how genuine it might be might also depend on kind of what facet of masculinity you might be kind of totally working towards so when we speak of different facets of masculinity, the different ways in which it manifests, would we call that sexual dominance? I would, so I would say rather than kind of like exploring maybe sexuality in this sense as kind of like a phenomenon of masculine dominance, I mean, I would suggest maybe it is more kind of a narrative around the realization of the self and fulfillment. And it is quite romantic. It's romantically driven. It, is, it isn't necessarily or even specifically about establishing kind of a dominant relationship or being dominant in or over your friends or towards yourself or over women tangibly rather it, it kind of stems from one of the few acceptable and masculinity is just a certain amount of acceptable narratives i guess we could say sexuality being one of them romanticism being another one i mean those two aren't necessarily the same one is about kind of finding fulfillment through and this is a popular narrative of our time no not only of masculinity but it's romanticism and kind of fulfilling yourself through finding another person you can spend your life with whatever that might be that we owe to some german writers a few hundred years ago Shout out to my boy Friedrich Schiller. Um, <laughs> but romanticism, sexuality are two of these huge masculine narratives. Sexuality, though, however, of course, there's intricacy to that. The narrative, of course, is not that sexuality in all its forms should be pursued. Obviously, we don't know it's not. It's rather that sexuality with a woman, very kind of heteronormative type stuff, is the only acceptable thing. I mean, say again, I use Twitter as a lot of my evidence, but. Just looking at Twitter, I saw a tweet the other day about prostate pleasure. It was a really quite great thing that should be normalized for men to pursue. But would never be accepted within white boy culture. Absolutely. Note the caveat that white boy culture isn't necessarily strictly Caucasian males. White boy culture is, of course, the dominant... It's the dominant phenomenon, so yeah. it can manifest in whatever community exactly. wants exactly. that wants to take it up. Exactly. Which will be probably pressure to take it mm-hmm. up. Absolutely. The reactions to this tweet really quite shows that it's just masculinity in its contemporary iteration is just not ready for that yet. 
yet. It's reacting quite negatively to that. Just because any kind of instantiation where the masculine figure has to become or is any way related to the feminine, it's seen as it, it's, it's inappropriate. It's Yeah, because mm-hmm. what is masculine is not feminine and what is feminine is not masculine. Rather than seeing this as a spectrum, the ideal is to perform to whatever far polarized end of the spectrum you're on and completely not exhibit any of the characteristics of the other side. So if you're performing masculinity, then you can't perform, you can't do anything that is what is seen as feminine in terms of emotional interconnectivity, emotional supports in your Absolutely. life. Absolutely. And, that, and that's kind of, that speaks to the dominant kind of formulation of contemporary masculinity is how is the masculine figure supposed to kind of validate his own self, his own sense of self? I mean that in a quite philosophical sense. How is selfhood and how is subjectivity kind of recognized by himself through the other? If you haven't figured it out yet, Nikolai is a philosophy student. As well. As <laughs> but uh, we as human beings have to kind of find recognition of ourselves. It's quite intersubjective that we find recognition of ourselves through the other. I don't mean that in like, I need people to validate my material wealth thing. I just mean we look out into the world. We are given dominant narratives or narratives. We are given codes of behavior. Whatever happens, we choose one. I mean choose in not necessarily strict metaphysical sense, but we we uh, come to one and we look around us. We try to enact this narrative, this self. This self is just this. And when we talk about authenticity, authenticity is an illusion, of course. It is just whatever narratives, meta-narratives that we've come to adhere to. We need to be validated in them. That's that's where the fulfillment comes from, is that I take on the narrative of being, a say, a philosopher or a... Uh, which I don't, but say being someone who can help others very broadly, but even more tangibly, we might consider it, say, we're speaking of a dominant female narrative, say a very strong feminist motherly figure that we want to be see realized through others, not in the world, but through others. Okay, so if I can try to sort of wrap my head around kind of what you're saying. So you have these existing narratives of masculinity. You want to kind of choose which aspect of it you want to try to negotiate with and sort of take up and perform. Ideally, one that you perceive to be kind of the most in line with how you might see yourself, Mm -hmm. what is the most quote-unquote authentic, which as you pointed out, authenticity is an illusion. And you want to go with the one that's going to be the least difficult for you, the one that you can perform most effectively and that will be received the best by others because we find meaning a lot of meaning in others is that am i kind of absolutely yeah I, I would say that's a pretty good synopsis so yeah we need to be recognized the selfhood needs to be realized through the self but we've come to a point and this is where miss mcmeekin discussed last week is that there's trouble there's a real quite conflict in, in kind of our contemporary state of being in being able to realize our selfhood in the world or through others i mean I, i'm going to suggest that it has to be through others um, i would agree yeah but a lot of kind of contemporary capitalist notions of kind of selfhood involves in- us trying individualism to f- individualism involves us realizing ourselves in the world so individualism is yes of course it's figuring out things for yourself and not helping others but with that there's there's kind of tangible other sub narratives that fall out from that being pursuit of material wealth that's really that lead us into a real hard time into kind of reaching that, that validation i mean if you're lucky enough to be a billionaire you look around yourself, you find you might be slightly validated by the things in the world that you have. And I'm glad that you said lucky enough to be a billionaire because it is luck. Oh, it's absolutely luck. We should not have any pretension that it's not luck. But if you're lucky enough to have material wealth, there might be a vein of validation because there's a pretension that, that say, there's our father, Adam Smith, has kind of constructed other, sees you as, as a person. 
you construct him as the person who recognizes you. That's still predicated on, sorry to get into the philosophy too much here, but uh, <laughs> that's still predicated on a direct kind of adherence to the conditions of the material world where no amount of throwing yourself at the world is in chasing material goods will see happiness realized because there's just you need the existence of another to be able to validate yourself there's there will be no kind of there's no positive interaction by which you kind of receive the fulfillment there so with that if we can just kind of put a point on capitalist materialism being one of these causes of say our great depression but not quite in an economic sense and not at all in an economic sense we might turn to the other narratives that give life meaning so then, the other narratives that kind of give life meaning for man, something you kind of look around, you can kind of see it is, it is hanging with the boys. It is being a good father. It is equally being a good father and husband. But those are two distinct things. Be a family man, generally, but being a good father and being a good husband, two different narratives. It is about being a romantic lover, equally tied in with the whole husband thing. And then there's also being a good member of your community, which we'll get to. But let's take the current state of romanticism and being a good husband. Of course, romanticism is one of the, is the essential way we have kind of in our temporal plane, in our time. Romanticism is the central way we kind of find meaning and fulfillment in our lives. It is, is with finding someone we deeply care for and, and gearing our lives towards making that place a better place for her or him. Or, they, or them. Or them, of course. So we're told that finding this, I mean, this harkens to the platonic idea of finding this, the perfect other, the, or the body separated at birth, whatever. And then go yeah. find, you go find your go other Go find half. your nuclear family, go follow the relationship escalator. Totally that too. But even just simpler, the whole romanticism is finding this perfect other. We're berated with this notion of perfect. And we're confronted with this narrative. We go out in the world, try to act upon it, go find this perfect other that we've been, again, braided with from, from the romantic period. And we look around us and we find someone, we find someone we like. Then we're emotionally connected to them, and then we, we marry them, and then such and such, and then, oh, what happened? It's a divorce. 50% of marriages ended in divorce in the past decade. I mean, then this is the failing of this narrative for our time. Not necessarily romanticism as a narrative, but our iteration of romanticism is that it's predicated on this notion of kind of emotional compatibility, but it's just almost a vapid, a empty emotional compatibility. It's this notion of if you have like a, a nice feeling when you're around someone, that's enough to spend the rest of your life with someone. That seems, that is quite unconsidered in that there's very likely someone you could spend the rest of your life with for all of us, but it's not necessarily the, a really quite empty notion of just being emotionally stimulated while you're around them. It's addicting, of course. And it's really seen as the be-all, end-all, because we're in this society that is built to make us insanely depressed, and you're supposed to find this perfect other who is supposed to fulfill you in every single way, and you're never going to be upset again, and you're going to live out your life happily ever after. Absolutely. That's a, yeah, a remarkable point. And I guess in short, because we only have so much time, the kind of narrative of marriage is quite a quite fallible narrative for, for our time. Again, growing up in Lorette, looking around on my friends' parents. My parents are madly in love, so I'm kind of lucky in that respect. But around broader society and these divorce rates, and it was it was troubling seeing the kind of conflict between married partners. So we also look at, say, turning to child rearing. And, that's, and, and just to, not to spend too much time on this, that's, again, a, being a fatherly figure is a really quite positive narrative. One of the good things about masculinity is being kind of a compassionate yet stern, fair leader for someone and kind of... We call it authoritative in psychology if you're able to be compassionate and also assertive. For sure, for sure. That's one of the few good narratives. Well, not few, but I mean, 
one a good narrative that lies at the heart of masculinity is kind of the attempt to be a father figure and that's so father figure can be a really quite positive narrative in all of our lives and it gives meaning to millions of men's lives but in kind of the in the occidental in the west in north america especially it seems that there's this disconnect between the child and his... I haven't done enough work to figure out what it is, but you look around at, at say, just the interaction between kids and their parents. There's a lack of, I don't want to say respect, but almost affication. It's gone. There's no There's no emotional attachment anymore. The child seems to try to separate himself, not in the a sense we've always seen, is that the child wants to be independent, but it just seems that there's no... The child doesn't care anymore about the relationship. He's not... He doesn't... He The child doesn't have to throw himself at the relationship he has with his parents. Well, no, because we're so consumed with individuality that even interfering with your child's life seems like an unacceptable thing. And whereas in a lot of societies, it's entirely normal to help your friends, your neighbors, your, like, distant family members with child rearing and give input on how to help and how to raise your child in an effective way. Whereas here... Here, you don't cross that line. You don't tell people how to raise their kids. So there's this obsessive putting up of walls between us and other people so much so that it interferes with the ability to apply a critical eye to how we're child rearing. Totally. Absolutely. So moving then, we might discuss the other kind of basic narratives that we have in our lives as men. Say being then that like of sports or, or kind of drinking or, or skidooing other such stuff as hunting and those can be fulfilling in their own right but there's just it's often just not enough unless you're really quite great unless you can throw your entire life at being someone who skidoos and make the world a better place for that it's really quite an empty pursuit not that it's empty as in it doesn't give you temporary fulfillment and pleasure it's just often not enough there needs to be more there so what then gives life fulfillment i i think i mean it's as so not skidoos not skidoos <laughs> um we might turn then, I think an excellent example is kind of contemporary femininity and what femininities become through kind of the past hundred years, the eternity of the development of feminism and its additions to kind of dominant female narratives. And that's all, of course, about resistance to patriarchy and kind of challenging the roles of subordinate women. And that's in kind of a very Fanonian sense, Franz Fanon, in that kind of, and this is his discussion of colonial subjects, in that they're kind of the self is validated through its struggle against imperialism, through capitalism. In the same sense that the woman's struggle and the woman's self is validated through her struggle against the dominant narratives trying to keep her oppressed. Whereas for men, the things that keep him oppressed are not quite so evident. They're very hidden. They're very, I mean, yeah. they're, they're not at all present to us. There's also narratives trying to mask it. I mean, because there's dominance and power, but you don't see the emotional narrative underneath that. Absolutely. It's just seen as pure advantage, whereas there's obvious disadvantage to not being able to speak about your emotions, not to have emotional connectedness with anyone. Totally. And that's the other sense of it is that femininity includes, as it's one of its clauses, kind of an appeal to community and, and compassion and helping others, which is often lacked in, in masculinity, is that kind of seeing as being too compassionate and, and too unself-interested is weak and feminine and even homosexual. And it's not a desirable thing. You put yourself first, not exclusively. I mean, we have the kind of the narrative, the kingly narrative, which is, again, a positive male narrative, the kingly narrative. So in terms of how to find fulfillment, what I'm getting is there's no one way to do it. You're not going to find it through skidoos. You're not going to find it through this roster. But there is an aspect of healing that can come from the feminine narrative in yeah. terms of how to deal with emotions yeah, and how to deal sure. with oneself and like personhood. Community support and mm -hmm. 
just like the, the overall narrative compassion and kind of appreciating the vulnerability of the other and equally of resistance and fighting back. Two of the strongest is one of survival and the other one of community. Two of the strongest, I mean, those are quite very tribal even, very familiar to us, very quite powerful narratives that, not even narratives, but powerful situations that give us, we as human beings, the utmost meaning, of course, survival. So then, I mean, if we want to, if we want to kind of improve our situation, then we have to be reformulating these iterations of masculinity towards not necessarily more feminine ones. I mean, of course, more feminine, but we have to be homogenizing and, and adopting a lot of feminine narratives around compassion and community into masculinity. We have to be able to give man a valve to externalize himself, a valve kind of to voice his passions to that isn't fighting, that isn't through aggression. We have to show men that they're desired. We have to show men that they are people, that they're not just actors, but that they are people who can be vulnerable, that they're human beings, that people want to be them, even full knowing that they're imperfect. Because of course, and I don't mean to say that it's the weight of the woman or other people to fix masculinity. We have to keep in mind that patriarchy is of course not not a cabal of men and it's not just all men it is everyone it is the narratives that we tell ourselves and it's the intersubjective communication that we have it is everything it is you and i we have to change masculinity of course to get away from those toxic aspects but we have to do so not exclusively by berating men it has to come from and it might be hard but it has to come from a deeper kind of appreciation for the humanity of man so in that I love my homies, and we should all aim to tell men that we love them and that it's okay to be vulnerable. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Nick. Oh, of course. It was my quite pleasure to be here. I actually, funny enough, one of the few masculine narratives that we can kind of save is the masculine stoic narrative. I actually came here at 10 o'clock yesterday morning thinking it was, uh, I, st- I did not go out and party on Friday night because I, uh, I thought uh, I thought oh, this no. was on Saturday morning, and I got at the university and checked my phone. I'm like, oh, that's pretty funny. It's tomorrow. Um, but with that, maybe uh, the masculine narrative of stoicism is kind of maybe one that we can save. <laughs> yeah, you're down for stoicism. Absolutely. Oniva. <laughs> little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes made of ticky-tacky little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes all the same. There's a pink one and a green one and a blue one and a yellow one and they're all made out of ticky tacky and they all look just the same. And the people in the houses all went to the university where they were put in boxes and they came out all the same. And there's doctors and lawyers and business executives and they're all made out of ticky-tacky and they all look just the same. And they all play on the golf course and drink their martinis dry and they all have pretty children and the children go to school and the children go to summer camp and then to the where they are put in boxes and they come out all the same and the boys go into business and marry and raise a family in boxes made of ticky-tacky and they all look just the same there's a pink one and a green one and a blue one 